0: As he never regarded the weather, he kept out from about 10 a.m. till 3 o'clock. When he came in, I carried some letters for him to Frank, intending to send them to the post office in the evening. He franked the letters, but said the weather was too bad to send a servant to the post office that evening. I observed that he got wet, but he said no, his great coat had kept him dry, but his neck appeared to be wet and the snow was hanging upon his hair. He came to dinner, which had been waiting for him, without changing his dress. In the evening, he appeared as well as usual. Tobias Lear, December 1799 March 4, 1797, was seen by the Washingtons as being a new phase in their lives. As their granddaughter Nellie wrote to a friend, quote, Grandpa is very well and much pleased with being once more Farmer Washington. As soon as they finished up the last remaining business in Philadelphia, including making arrangements for their less fragile belongings to be shipped back to Virginia aboard a sloop, George and Martha Washington, their grandchildren, George Washington Lafayette, and his tutor Felix Fresteau, departed in a coach, bound south. This southward bound journey would mark the final phase of George Washington's life, and it is this final phase that is our focus today. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before the Washingtons and their party get to Mount Vernon, I'd like to take a moment to thank Michael Troy of the American Revolution podcast for providing the intro quote for this penultimate episode. Much as I am taking you on a journey through presidential history, Michael takes listeners on a journey through the ins and outs of the history of the American Revolution, shedding light on details that are not as well known to the general public, but which set the United States on the course to independence. Once you're done with this episode, check out the American Revolutions podcast by going to blog.amrev, that's R-E-V, podcast, all one word, dot com, or look for the American Revolution podcast on iTunes or Podbean. I will also include a link to Michael's website on the show notes page for this episode. On March 15th, the Washingtons arrived at Mount Vernon, where they felt, as Martha wrote, quote, more like new beginners than old established residenters, as we found everything in a deranged state and all the buildings in a decaying state. As described by James Thomas Flexner, Washington quote, Summoned his painters to freshen up the rooms of the mansion house, but soon discovered that he had begun at the wrong end. His carpenters would have to prepare for the painters. Hardly had they begun than problems emerged that were beyond the skills of his slave artisans. He would have to import a joiner from some city, and then he wandered into the cellar carrying a bright light, more by accident than design. He discovered that the great girder, which supported the banquet hall, was so decayed that a company only moderately large would have sunk altogether into the cellar. Further inspection revealed that there was hardly a structure on the Mount Vernon plantation that did not need repairs. This was where the Washingtons thrived, though, and George and Martha set themselves to getting affairs at Mount Vernon back in order. Martha would get the household running like clockwork once more, while George saw to the revitalization of the buildings and tending to affairs on the farms. Before long, they would be settled into a new routine at their mansion of retirement. While some things did change in terms of how they managed their lives after the presidency, as was discussed briefly in the special episode on Martha Washington, episode 1.215, the Washingtons found that other facets of life were as they had been in the old days. As noted by Martha Washington's biographer, Patricia Brady, quote, As it had been following the Revolution, Mount Vernon was again flooded with guests. When the Washingtons were at home, visitors couldn't be far behind. Despite how refurbishments and entertaining ate into their schedules, George and Martha did still have time to think about the future prospects of their grandchildren, Washy and Nellie. Nellie was getting to the age where marriage had to be considered. Martha had been training her on how to run a household and entertain guests, and Nellie was sent frequently to Alexandria and the soon-to-be capital city of Washington, D.C. to be among society and available to the eye of potential suitors. There were rumors of a possible relationship with George Washington Lafayette, but Nellie herself dismissed those in a letter in which she asserted that, quote, the opinion of the wise that friendship alone cannot exist between two young persons of different sexes is very erroneous and ridiculous. I shall ever feel an interest and sincere regard for my young adopted brother, but to being in love with him, it is entirely out of the question. While generally Nellie met with her grandparents' approval, while she, on the other hand, George Washington found to have, quote, manifold errors and follies. He had previously been sent to study at the University of Pennsylvania and the College of New Jersey, the institution now known as Princeton, but had not proven a success at either. As noted by Flexner, Washie, quote, wanted to be allowed to grow up like his neighborhood playmates as a relaxed Southern gentleman, but Washington was determined to make more of the young man. George and Martha discussed the possibility of sending him to Harvard College, but ultimately decided to send him to St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Meanwhile, the other young man who returned with the Washingtons to Mount Vernon, George Washington Lafayette, would slowly but surely receive word of developments with his father. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. As General Napoleon Bonaparte led his army of Italy through the northern part of the Italian peninsula, then turned to threaten Vienna, the capital of the Habsburg Empire, in 1796 and early 1797, pressure increased both on the French government to have the release of Lafayette as part of any peace negotiation and on the Habsburg government to release their by-nail internationally famous prisoner. Even British poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge had put his ink to Lafayette's aid with a poem praising the captive Frenchman. Quote, Thou Fayette, who didst wake with startling voice life's better sun from that long wintry night, thus in thy country's triumphs shalt rejoice and mock with raptures high the dungeon's might. The only problem with all this attention was that the Habsburgs now saw Lafayette as a valuable bargaining chip in negotiations with the French, so they were even less inclined to a release without getting something good in return. Thus, month after month in 1797 passed with little progress being made. Legislative elections in France in April meant a new push by Lafayette's friends in Paris to get the French government to redouble its efforts to seek his release. From within their captivity in Olmutz, Adrian Lafayette had smuggled out letters providing advice and personally appealing to everyone from the Habsburg Emperor Franz des Fecht, a.k.a. Francis II, to General Napoleon. The Habsburg government in Austria prepared for Lafayette's release throughout the summer as they negotiated with the French. On July 25th, A representative of the Habsburgs approached Lafayette with the government's initial offer, which was for Lafayette and his party to depart from Austria for the United States and not return to the Habsburg Empire without the emperor's permission. This was seen as putting Lafayette and his party under the jurisdiction and control of the emperor, so they pushed back. Meanwhile, French and American negotiators got involved in the back and forth between the prisoners at Olmutz and the government in Vienna. While the American involved, John Parrish, was no longer an official representative of the American government, as he had been replaced as U.S. consul at Hamburg, Parrish's replacement, Samuel Williams, agreed to allow Parrish to represent the United States in the matter, despite having no official orders to that effect. Meanwhile, events in France in early September, most notably the coup of 18 Fructador, something that is far outside of the scope of this episode and that we'll discuss in the Adams series, led the Habsburg government to realize that they had little to gain by continuing to hold Lafayette and his party, while their release would help to facilitate a more palatable peace. And thus, on September 9th, an officer was directed to escort Lafayette and his party to Hamburg and to provide them with all possible comforts, but without any publicity. On the evening of October 3rd, the party arrived at Hamburg, where not only was Lafayette greeted by a crowd of well-wishers and cheers from onlookers, but also on hand were U.S. Consul Williams, into whose custody Lafayette was officially transferred, as well as Williams' predecessor, John Parrish, and the former U.S. Minister of France, who Lafayette had known during the Revolution, as well as during his tenure in Paris, Governor Morris. With the transfer, Lafayette was now finally free. Back in the United States, the young Lafayette had been clamoring for information, so much so that Washington had written to Postmaster General Joseph Habersham while still in office in August 1796, asking him, quote, to direct the deputy postmasters in the seaport towns if any letters with his, i.e., George Washington Lafayette's, superscription thereon, are that of Mr. Frestell, to whose care he is committed, should get to their offices to put them under a cover to me. This would avoid delay, ensure their safe delivery, and might be a source of consolation to the young gentleman. While providing further proof that at the end of his presidency, Washington was not nearly as concerned about keeping his personal matters separate from his public position, as we also saw in episode 1.31, I think we can say that this abuse of public power is morally more justifiable than that exhibited in the case of Ona Judge. After their return to Mount Vernon, Washington and the young Lafayette began to hear rumors that the Marquis had been released from imprisonment and was returning to France. While Washington attempted to dissuade him until they heard more conclusive reports and could be assured of the young man's safety, George Washington Lafayette was eager to get back to Europe so that he could rejoin his family. Thus, Washington rode with the young man to Washington, D.C., where he bid him farewell as he continued on to New York and then on a ship to Europe. It would take months for Washington to learn both that the Marquis had in fact been released and that his son had been safely returned to him. But one can imagine the joy that Washington felt when he received the letter from his friend Lafayette written on October 6th, three days after his arrival in Hamburg, asserting that, quote, With what eagerness and pleasure I would hasten to fly to Mount Vernon, there to pour out all the sentiments of affection, respect, and gratitude which ever bound me and more than ever, bind me to you. And assuring Washington that, quote, your paternal goodness to my, to our son, was not unexpected, but has been most heartily felt. At last we are out, and I had the satisfaction to see the United States take a part in this last transaction whereby I am released with my two friends, and that part of my family, which was not under your immediate protection, in the happy country where Georges and his excellent friend have experienced so much kindness. Would to God this family might for the first time meet again at Mount Vernon and be reunited in your friendly and paternal arms. Washington would likely have wanted nothing more either, but at the time, it was not likely that French visitors, even the family of the famed Lafayette, would have received a warm reception in the United States. The tensions between the U.S. and France that had developed following the Jay Treaty had only exacerbated during the tenure of Washington's successor. Again, this is something that we'll cover more in depth in our next series, including a more in depth look at Washington's role in developments. Suffice it to say that, as the drumbeats of war grew ever louder in 1798, more and more Federalist politicians turned back to the former president to provide leadership during the crisis. On May 19th, Alexander Hamilton wrote to Washington that, quote, There is certainly great probability that we may have to enter into a very serious struggle with France. And it is more and more evident that the powerful faction which has for years opposed the government is determined to go every length with France. In such a state of public affairs, it is impossible not to look up to you and to wish that your influence could in some proper mode be brought into direct action. Even the president himself wrote to his predecessor on June 22nd that, quote, we must have your name if you in any case will permit us to use it. There will be more efficacy in it than in many an army. Washington was ultimately appointed as lieutenant general and commander in chief of the army by Adams though whether he would actually take up the appointment became part of a back and forth between Adams and Washington over who would be Washington's second in command. During this dispute, on August 18th, Washington, quote, came down with an ague, chills and sweats, and succumbed a couple of days later to a fever so intense that he shed 20 pounds in short order. He was so weakened by illness that even writing letters proved a wearisome task. Even if Washington lent his name as Adams had requested to the war effort, it was clear that his days of leading an army in the field, day in and day out, were over. Whatever his new role in the army was, though, his assumption of responsibility for determining the order of officers as a part of his negotiation with Adams would cause a serious rupture in Washington's relationship with his longtime friend and subordinate, Henry Knox. Again, this will be discussed in more detail in the Adams series, but Washington would choose Hamilton to serve as his second-in-command and, in essence, active leader of the U.S. Army over Henry Knox and Charles Cotesworth Pinckney, both of whom had ranked higher on the officers' list than Hamilton in the Continental Army. Plain dumb and using the fact that it was Adams that had submitted the list provided by Washington to the Senate, Washington wrote to Knox on July 16th that, quote, Hamilton, in the public estimation as declared to me, is designated to be second in command, with some fears I confess of the consequences, although I must acknowledge at the same time that I know not where a more competent choice could be made. This stung at the proud Knox. After all, while Hamilton had left his service and struck out on his own during the Revolutionary War, Knox had stood firmly by Washington up until his first retirement from public office. When Washington was called back to serve as president, it had been Knox waiting for him to help transition from the confederation government and who had continued to serve even when it hurt him financially. They had shared triumph and tragedy together. And now, this. Not only did it hurt his feelings that one that he considered a friend would pick to trust someone else over him, but it was a public insult, as everyone would know that Washington felt Hamilton was a more capable commander... Knox. The wounded Knox wrote back to Washington on July 29th that, quote, for more than 20 years, I must have been acting under a perfect delusion, conscious myself of entertaining for you a sincere, active, and invariable friendship. I easily believed it was reciprocal. Nay more, I flattered myself with your esteem and respect in a military point of view, But I find that others, greatly my juniors in rank, have been, upon a scale of comparison, preferred before me. After a couple of months of supporters, including President Adams, trying to change Washington's mind without success, Knox ultimately decided to resign this new commission in the fall and end the now-embarrassing stalemate. He and Washington exchanged one final back-and-forth in letter form, with Knox ending the correspondence on November 4th by stating that, quote, I will not detain you one moment longer than to say in the presence of Almighty God that there is not a creature upon the surface of this globe who was, is, and will remain more your sincere friend than Henry Knox. Knox would not be the only friend that Washington lost during his retirement. In late September 1797, a person using the name of John Langhorne wrote to Washington declaiming that, quote, When a man of distinguished worth suffers a merited colony it has the same effect as an eclipse of the sun which serves only to make it mired the more is it possible that you may suffer as much from the villainy of others in this respect as you could do from your own demerit of what use then is virtue basically the letter was designed to commiserate with washington in the public attacks that had been launched against him by benjamin franklin bosch the calm observer and others over the years But for what purpose would this person unknown to Washington write to him with such passion? The ever-measured and publicly composed Washington was already not one to pour his heart out to just anyone, but his spidey senses were tingling with this letter, so his response was carefully measured with an assertion that, quote, For the divisions which have taken place among us, with respect to our political concerns, for the attacks which have been made upon those to whom the administration of the government hath been entrusted by the people, and for the calumnies which are leveled at all those who are disposed to support the measures thereof, I feel on public account as much as any man can do, because, in my opinion, much evil and no good can result from such conduct to this country. He made it clear in his brief letter that his concern was for the effects of factionalism for the people and for the country, while he had, quote, a consolation which proves an antidote against their utmost malignity, rendering my mind in the retirement I have long panted after perfectly tranquil. No reply was received from Langhorne. Towards the end of the year, Washington received word from the county clerk at Albemarle, from where the Langhorne letter had originated, that Langhorne was, in fact, Peter Carr, Thomas Jefferson's nephew, who the clerk asserted had been, quote, raised and inundated directly by himself, i.e. Jefferson, from a child, a constant dependent and resident in his house from that period almost to the present. and entertaining sentiments, I do assure you of my own personal knowledge, very different indeed towards you from those contained in his letter. This was not the first slight that Washington had felt from his former Secretary of State that year. In May 1797, his letter to Philip Mazai, the one that was the opening quote for Episode 1.32 about samson's and Solomons, was made public. Mazai had this letter from Jefferson translated into Italian and published in a paper in Florence, from which it was translated into French and published in the Paris Moniteur in France before it was translated back into English and reprinted in a paper in Britain, before finally returning to the U.S., where Noah Webster published it in his Minerva. Jefferson read it himself on May 9th, and, though it spurred a public debate, he waited until August 3rd to write to his friend, now former Representative James Madison, outlining the situation and asserting that, quote, It would be impossible for me to explain this publicly without bringing on a personal difference between General Washington and myself, which nothing before the publication of this letter has ever done. It would embroil me also with all those with whom his character is still popular, that is to say nine-tenths of the people of the U.S., and what good would be obtained by my avowing the letter with the necessary explanations. Though he had maintained a silence about the situation, Jefferson knew damage control had to be done, especially if he were to preserve a relationship with Washington, and asked Madison to, quote, think for me on the occasion and advise me what to do, and confer with Colonel Monroe on the subject. Ultimately, Washington would never speak to Jefferson on the subject, or vice versa, but the correspondence between these two men, which had carried on long after Jefferson had left his cabinet post, had seen its last letter in August 1796, and would not be taken back up by either. There had been accusations that Jefferson had been talking about Washington behind his back previously, but for some reason, the one-two punch of the Mazzei letter and the Langhorne letter looks as if it convinced Washington that there was some truth to the reports and rumors he had heard over the years. It seems that he came to see the Langhorne letter as an entrapment attempt organized by Jefferson to get him to say something impolitic which could then be published and one imagines used to derail the Federalist agenda by attacking the character of Washington. Certainly, that was what the clerk, John Nicholas, himself a Federalist, felt. And Washington, replying to Nicholas on March 8, 1798, asserted that, quote, if the person whom you suspect, i.e. Peter Carr, was really the author of the letter under the signature of John Langhorne, it is not at all surprising to me that the correspondence should have ended where it did, for the penetration of that man, i.e. Jefferson, would have perceived at the first glance of the answer that nothing was to be drawn from that mode of attack. Now, it should be noted that there is no evidence that Jefferson had anything to do with the Langhorne letter, and he certainly had nothing to do with the publication of the Mazzai letter. Indeed, he intended for that one to remain private, but Washington felt that he would now have to defend his record, his reputation, and his honor. Between the perceived attacks on his character from the vice president and his quarrels with the president on his authority in the army, Washington wrote to his nephew Bushrod in August 1798 that, quote, I little thought when I retired to the shades of private life last year, that any event would happen in my day that could bring me again on the public theater. But so it is, and the remnant of a life which required ease and tranquility will end more than probably in toil and responsibility. Toil and responsibility were in Washington's mind beyond his own existence during his post-presidency. In May 1798, a Polish nobleman, Julian Niemcewicz, came to visit Mount Vernon after having met the former president in Georgetown earlier in the month. Niemcevins describes Washington of this time as follows, his is a majestic figure in which dignity and gentleness are united. The portraits that we have of him in Europe do not resemble him much. He is nearly six feet tall, square set, and very strongly built. Aquiline nose, blue eyes, the mouth, and especially the lower jaw sunken a good head of hair. Nemsevince and Washington's step-grandson-in-law, Thomas Law, went to visit the former president and his family at Mount Vernon a few days later, at which Nemsevince observed, quote, I've often heard the general reproach for his reserved and his taciturnity. It is true that he is somewhat reserved in speech, but he does not avoid entering into conversation when one furnishes him with a subject. His favorite subject is agriculture, but he answered with kindness all questions that I put him on the revolution, the armies, etc. He has a prodigious memory. One subject they did not discuss, but that Niemcevitz learned more about from his observations and questioning of the estate manager and possibly some of the enslaved individuals on the estate, was slavery. Quote, they, the enslaved people, work all week, not having a single day for themselves except holidays. One sees by that that the condition of our peasants in Poland is infinitely happier. Though he noted that Washington's treatment of the enslaved individuals on his estate was better than that of other Virginians who, quote, give to their blacks only bread, water, and blows. Neem's events could not help but observe that Washington, quote, spoke as differently to the enslaved individuals as if he had been quite another man or had been in anger. Little could anyone have imagined that the spark that we had previously seen in his letter to Tobias Lear in May 1794, as discussed in episode one point nineteen, was lingering beneath the surface, an idea of getting out of the slave owning business. In july seventeen ninety nine, he would set out to help this spark to grow when he sat down to write out his will. Lore is that he had a dream of his impending death that motivated him at this point to write out his will but we have no proof or any way of knowing exactly why he did what he did at the time. However, when he wrote the will, he wrote it out to emancipate all 123 of Mount Vernon's 316 enslaved people that he owned outright. As discussed in episode 1.31, not all of the enslaved individuals at Mount Vernon were within Washington's legal rights to free. 40 were rented from other slave owners, while the rest belonged to the Custis estate. As explained in episode 1.215, our focus on Martha Washington, he stipulated that they would only be freed upon Martha's death, which created its own series of problems. Henry Weinzik, in his examination of Washington's relationship with slavery, notes that in his will, he was quite specific about what he wished to happen. In one clause, he provided for the care of the elderly and infirm people freed until their death. In another, he provided for the education of free children who, quote, have no parents living, or if living, are unable, or unwilling to provide for them. More tellingly, was a clause in which he, quote, hereby expressly forbid the sale or transportation out of the said commonwealth of any slave I may die possessed of, under any pretense whatsoever, and I do moreover, most pointedly, and most solemnly, Enjoin it upon my executors hereafter named to see that this clause respecting slaves and every part thereof be religiously fulfilled at the epoch at which it is directed to take place without evasion, neglect, or delay. As noted by Weinseck, quote, the vehemence of Washington's language suggests that he trusted none of his heirs and executors. The order for an emancipation should have been clear and sufficient in itself, but Washington did not think so. He expected evasions and pretenses. Weintsek also brings up a point that has been little discussed with the emancipation called for in Washington's will. Quote, virtually every emancipation plan proposed in Washington's time included forced exile for the freed slaves to Africa or the West Indies. Washington insisted that no one be exiled. The slaves had a right to live on American soil. Now, it is worth noting that this emancipation would not occur until Washington was cold in the ground, but considering how unfortunately rare a full emancipation like this is in American history, though we wish that he had done more in his lifetime, in understanding Washington, one can understand how the conservatism and the morality of Washington carried out an internal battle. While he seems to have learned during his lifetime that African Americans were not inferior and that slavery was wrong, he struggled with the economic sacrifice and the social reorganization that emancipation would entail. With his provision that the enslaved people of African descent could remain in America after obtaining their freedom, Washington evidenced a belief that African Americans could be, as stated in his will in the provision about the children, quote, brought up to some useful occupation agreeably to the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I've seen no evidence to date that Washington ever felt the laws could or would become a club by which to beat African Americans into a state of submission after achieving emancipation as future generations would do. But evidence shows him to often be a cautious optimist who believed that the nation would find its way in the end after getting out of the problems and entanglements of the present. Little could he have imagined what awaited his nation. But I digress. For the rest of his estate, Washington decided to subdivide it among relatives after Martha's passing, with over 50 of his relatives receiving bequeathments in the will. The mansion house of Mount Vernon would go to his nephew, Bushrod Washington, who was by that time a Supreme Court Justice. Meanwhile, Washington also provided 50 shares of the Potomac River Company that he owned to the purpose of establishing a new university in Washington, D.C., while 100 shares that he had in the James River Company would go to Liberty Hall Academy, an academic institution in western Virginia that would ultimately be renamed Washington and Lee University. 20 shares in the bank of Alexandria would go to a school, quote, to educate orphaned and indigent children. Washington had time to deal with his personal affairs as the anticipated war with France never materialized. Thus, he was able to focus many of his attentions homeward. He did, however, take a tour of the still under construction Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1797 and, as part of his assumption of the role of Commander-in-Chief of the Army, went to Philadelphia in late 1798. Despite the diversions back into the public eye after his retirement, his heart and his life at this point still remained at Mount Vernon. This did not stop the world from trying to intrude. In late June 1799, that doomsayer that we met last episode, Jonathan Trumbull Jr., wrote to Washington, Trumbull had ascended from lieutenant governor to the governorship of Connecticut by this point, but his view was no less dire of the prospects of a political landscape without Washington in it. Quote, you may perhaps recollect, my dear sir, that in some conversation of mine with you on the subject of your resignation of the presidency, or in some letter written to you on that subject, I expressed to you my wish that no untoward events might take place which should once more draw you from your beloved solitude and retirement and force you again to assume the cares of government. The period then alluded to, and the necessity which I then contemplated might exist, I now begin to realize as fast approaching. Another election of a president is near at hand, and I have confidence in believing that should your name again be brought up with a view to that object, You will not disappoint the hopes and desires of the wise and good in every state by refusing to come forward once more to the relief and support of your injured country. Washington's response in late July expresses just how partisan he had become in his thinking, but again reflecting that he did not feel that he was the one who could save the country again. The following is a lengthy quote, but I think it worth sharing in its totality quote "I remember well the conversation which you allude to, and have not forgot the answer I gave you. In my judgment, it applies with as much force now as then, nay more, because at that time the line between parties was not so clearly drawn and the views of the opposition so clearly developed as they are at present. Of course, allowing your observation as it respects myself, to be founded, personal influence, would be of no avail. Let that party, i.e. the Democratic-Republicans, set up a broomstick and call it a true son of liberty, a Democrat, or give it any other epithet that will suit their purpose, and it will command their votes in toto. Will not the Federalists meet, or rather defend their cause, on the opposite ground? Surely they must, or they will discover a want of policy indicative of weakness and pregnant of mischief, which cannot be admitted. Wherein then would lie the difference between the present gentleman in office, i.e. President Adams, and myself? It would be matter of sore regret to me if I could believe that a serious thought was turned towards me as his successor, not only as it respects my ardent wishes to pass through the veil of life in retirement, undisturbed in the remnant of the days I have to sojourn here, unless called upon to defend my country, which every citizen is bound to do, but on public ground also, for although I have abundant cause to be thankful for the good health with which I am blessed, yet I am not insensible to my declination in other respects it would be criminal, therefore, in me, although it should be the wish of my countrymen, and I could be elected, to accept an office under this conviction, which another could discharge with more ability. Washington's time had come and gone. His strength had been in being the nonpartisan figure under which everyone could rally, and he knew that the public did not see him as that anymore noting that, quote, I'm thoroughly convinced I should not draw a single vote from the anti-federal side, but that even beyond that, his advanced age and a return to the presidency, even if he wanted it, would mean that, quote, I should be charged not only with irresolution, but with concealed ambition, which wants only an occasion to blaze out, and in short, with dotage and imbecility. Whoever could save America in Washington's mind, he knew, it could not be him. The only thing he could offer his nation at this point was the example of a Cincinnatus who, after being handed the reins of power by the public, had relinquished them willingly and returned to the field. The world had moved on from Farmer Washington. Washington's world, however, saw some of the same figures come back into the fold. Even before, but certainly after he married into the Washington family, George Washington had looked out for his former secretary, Tobias Lear. While still president, Washington had arranged for Lear's business firm to be involved in the establishment of an arsenal at a little place known as Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Lear was also involved in the Potomac Company, the canal company that, if you remember from way back in episode 1.2, Washington had served as the first president of, and still had a hand in. He also ran various unpaid errands for the president. With all of the various business ventures that Lear was involved in, he ultimately ran into issues keeping on top of everything, and all of his businesses started to suffer, which was problematic for Washington as well, as he was invested both financially and ideologically in the Potomac Company, and his good word had gotten Lear's firm, T. Lear & Company, much business with the federal government. Now, there are questions about Lear's handling of the federal funds. In a precarious financial state, Lear would go to the former president asking for a loan, but with Washington having to refuse his friend, though he gave him the leeway to repay the debt that Lear already had due to Washington in his own time. The former president, however, did demand an accurate accounting of the repayment. Friendship only went so far for the frugal Washington. He would throw Lear another lifeline upon his assumption of the post of head of the army by naming Lear as, quote, his chief aide with the rank of colonel. Lear's biographer, Ray Bryden, asserts that Lear would use the title, quote, like a security blanket for the rest of his days. Washington would also approach the governor of Virginia, asking for the state to grant a loan to the Potomac Company to help to shore up its affairs. Lear would use his new position in the Army as an excuse to dissolve the partnership of T. Lear and Company in early 1799, and he would throw himself into the role of Washington's gopher. Go for this, go for that. In 1799, however, Lear would suffer numerous setbacks. He seems to have suffered a rather serious illness in February 1799. Then in March, as Lear's former partner, Tristram Dalton, was taking over the business previously handled by T. Lear & Company, he started to find that in payments due from various business partners, which Lear claimed had not been paid yet, that the partners were claiming that they had already paid the balance due to Lear. Lear made his way to visit Dalton in Washington, D.C., and confessed that, due to his financial distress, he had, indeed, pocketed the money. He also confessed to Dalton that, quote, at times, he had been so hard-pressed as to think of suicide. Dalton would try to work with Lear to make things right, but ultimately, Lear's actions would lead Dalton to declare bankruptcy later in his life. So long as Lear could hitch his star to Washington, though, he was likely to find his way through even the worst of difficulties. 1799 was a year of financial difficulties for Washington as well. As he had written to a correspondent at the end of the previous year, quote, I can assure you that I find it no easy matter to keep my expenditures within the limits of my receipts. A drought that summer, quote, ruined his oat crop, threatened his corn, and left his meadows barren. This was at a time when former presidents received no compensation after they left office. So Washington had to resort to selling lands that he owned in the West, as well as houses that he had built in Washington, D.C., along with, quote, for the first time in his life, taking out bank loans, renewed at 60-day intervals, and set at what he'd termed ruinous interest rates. For all the joys that being at Mount Vernon brought him, it also brought its share of financial stress and anxiety. And as he had while still president, Washington thought of how he could simplify his operations and find a way to live, quote, exempt from cares. He had started putting plans in place to rent out some of the businesses on his estate and to restore some fields that had been exhausted of nutrients in the past. But before he could carry out those plans, Events occurred on December 12, 1799, that would bring Washington to his final hours of life. A couple of months prior, it looked like Martha Washington might precede her husband to the grave, as she developed a fever that left Martha ill for the majority of September and October 1799. However, she finally recovered late in October, and life proceeded at Mount Vernon as normal. On December 12, as was his normal way, and as was described in our opening quote from Tobias Lear, Washington, despite poor weather, which started as snow, then turned to hail and a cold rain, went about his business on the estate, taking, quote, a full five-hour tour of his farms on horseback. And when he returned to the mansion house, as he, quote, did not wish to keep his guests waiting, sat down for his midday meal without changing out of his wet clothes. The next day, the former president had developed a sore throat, but yet again went out in the snow to mark trees to cut down. By the evening, the sore throat had worsened so that he was hoarse and now suffering from chest congestions, but he refused to take medicine, believing that medicine should only be taken when absolutely necessary. Working at his library late in the evening, he finally went to bed, but woke up in the middle of the night, quote, with a raw inflamed throat and was having difficulty breathing. He woke Martha, but refused to have her summon anyone else until morning. By the time Tobias Lear was summoned on the morning of the 14th, he found Washington struggling to breathe, quote, and scarcely able to utter a word intelligibly. It was at this point that word was sent to summon Dr. James Crake, Washington's longtime friend who had went with him on his journeys out west in 1770 and 1784, as discussed in episode 1.2. While waiting for Crake, and despite Martha's protest, Washington had himself bled to the point that, quote, nearly a pint of blood had been drained. Martha had another doctor summoned, and when Crake arrived, he had a third doctor summoned. Their treatment involved yet more bleeding, quote, applying to the throat cantharides, a preparation made from dried beetles, along with inhaling steam from a teapot filled with vinegar and hot water, having Washington gargle sage tea mixed with vinegar, another round of bleeding, giving Washington an enema, and just in case the last three times weren't enough, let's go with some more bleeding. In total, Washington lost, quote, five pints of blood altogether on that day, or about half of his body's total supply. The one treatment that might have saved him, a tracheotomy, which was recommended by the third doctor, was overruled by the other two. Instead, everyone finally resigned themselves to the fact that Washington was not long for this world. He gave Tobias Lear instructions about his papers and had Martha bring two copies of his will, one of which he told her to burn, which meant that the one that he had drafted in July, freeing the enslaved people that he owned outright, would be his legal will upon his demise. He told his friend, Dr. Craig, quote, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. He lasted through the day and well into the evening, but he would not see another sunrise. As noted by those in the room, he, quote, expired without a struggle or a sigh, in bed at Mount Vernon around 10 p.m. on December 14, 1799. We'll talk more about the impact that his death had on his contemporaries in the Adams series, but I wanted to finish up this episode by talking about Washington's legacy and providing you with my thoughts on what we can take away from this look at his presidency and his life. Little needs to be said about the pedestal that Washington has been elevated even higher on than he was during his lifetime following his passing. He has been revered as the first president, the father of our nation, the great leader, and the shining example. However, I hope that if you take nothing else away from the series, it's that Washington was more than just the figure sculpted in Marvel or carved into Mount Rushmore or printed on the $1 bill. To me, I learned more from studying Washington the man than I ever could in seeing Washington as the monument of American history that he's been made out to be. Our audio editor, Andrew, at one point while we were working on the series, shared with me a conversation that he had with his roommate about why works that examine Washington seem to be overwhelmingly positive while so many other presidents are looked at with more of an air of judgment of weighing their positives and negatives to come to a conclusion. In working on this series and having to make judgment calls of my own on how to present certain subjects or explain certain parts of Washington's life or his presidency, I think I've come upon a possible answer for that. Here was the man that held the Continental Army and the new nation together through some pretty dark times where success was not a guarantee by any stretch. He led by carrying an air of confidence in public that was intended to have others believe that there was no doubt in his mind that all would be well. His contemporaries and folks since have looked at Washington as a symbol of hope, but in looking at him and building him up and holding him up as a symbol, they have, whether intentionally or inadvertently, wrung out the humanity of his story and set him up as something to which we cannot relate. I hope that in this series, you have felt that I've done justice to his story, sharing not just the triumphs, but also the failures of the president and of his presidency. Do I feel that he was the best person to be the first president of the United States? Absolutely. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. Was he a good man? I do believe him to be genuine in his protestations of his commitment to serving the public as best he could and as honorably as he could. As with all people, he had some blind spots as well as some flaws of which he was acutely aware Some of the precedents that he established have served us well, others not so much. As we saw in particular, there is room for concern of the precedent set by Washington's refusal to take a stronger stand to work towards the emancipation of the growing enslaved population in the United States, as well as how he often blurred the lines between his public authority and his private business. There's always room for speculation on whether he had done this or that differently, what might have happened. And had Washington lived longer and actually been able to get to that life quote unquote exempt from cares, of which he had dreamt, I would not be surprised if he would not have entered into that speculation as well. Then again, whether that life was ever possible for the quote unquote great Washington, one has to wonder. Whether attending to family affairs or military matters or public business. Washington's life was one where there was always more to do. One more challenge, one more struggle, one more task that needed to be accomplished. Finally, though, one must come to the end. According to Tobias Lear, after giving him his final set of instructions, Washington asked, do you understand me? And when Lear replied in the affirmative, Washington said, tis well. And these two syllables were the last he ever spoke two simple words to mark the end of a life filled with complexities and trials and events unlike any that many of his contemporaries could have imagined. After the words fade and the man is buried, his legacy is to be found in a young nation and a peaceful transition of power to a new presidency, one which we shall begin to examine on July 4th. Until then, I'd like to thank Michael Troy of the American Revolution podcast again for providing this week's intro quote. Go check out the American Revolution podcast and learn more of how Washington and his contemporaries got from colonial rule to the federal government under the Constitution. Though he was not able to work on this episode due to some technical issues, it wouldn't be right to close out this series without thanking the podcast audio editor, Andrew Fonko. Much like Washington's presidency, this first series has been a monumental effort, and Andrew was instrumental in making it to this point. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening. I can only hope that you've enjoyed this journey through the history of Washington's presidency as much as I have, and are as excited as I about learning more about Mr. Adams and his tenure as president starting on July 4th. While you're waiting, there are a couple of things that you can do. First, if you have any lingering questions about Washington, his life, his presidency, or any of the folks or events associated with his presidency, send them on my way to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can send them to me via Facebook, where I can be found at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter, where my handle is presidencies89. If you'd like to do more research into Washington, I always have my sources for each episode listed on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's dot I've become rather infamous for my extensive sources. For the entire series, I haven't done a final total, but I believe that I used somewhere between 430 and 440 sources. Some of those were primary documents, letters and memoranda written by our subjects, in addition to scholarly journal articles and books. I don't feel that the story could have been told as it's been told without all of those sources, and I'm grateful for the work of all those historians and scholars whose work has contributed to this modest effort. Meanwhile, it's taken somewhere around 233,000 words and around 21 hours to tell the tale. That's been a commitment for both you and me, so kudos to all of us for getting to this point in the journey together. For now, it's time to say farewell, but we'll meet here again on July 4th to hit the trail again and see what there is to learn about the presidency of John Adams. Thanks again, and until next time, take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.